Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 254, From Russia to the Soviet Union, The Transition, Part 3. Last time, we covered the period from the time right before the abdication of Nicholas II until the day that the Bolsheviks took control of Petrograd and Moscow. In 1918, the Bolsheviks had control of the two main cities in Russia, but they had no plan on how they were going to rule the country. Not only that, they really didn't know how to implement socialism. Lenin knew that because of this, the Bolsheviks had to eliminate anyone who threatened their power. This was apparent in the aftermath of the Second All-Russian Congress of Soviets, held on January 18, 1918. Of the 707 delegates, 370 were socialist revolutionaries, 40 left socialist revolutionaries, 170 Bolsheviks, 43 Mensheviks, and 84 members of minor parties. Lenin realized he was not in control and that the SRs held the majority. Everyone had been waiting for this Congress for months, but its outcome was nothing like what everyone wanted. Seeing his, his disadvantage, Lenin had his troops disperse the Constituent Assembly the next day. Surprisingly, at the time, there was no response. In hindsight, this was not remarkable, as there was no organized force behind the opposition. There was a significant reason for no response, and it was in the brilliant rhetoric and actions that the Bolsheviks took. There were two things that the people wanted an end to the war, and giving the peasants gentry land. While the war would take two months to resolve itself with the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk on March 3, 1918, the war was pretty much over for the Russians in December of 1917 due to an armistice with the Germans. Still, the cost of the treaty was immense. Famed Russian historian George Vernadsky said, quote, the peace conditions were disastrous to Russia. The Ukraine, Poland, Finland, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia received their independence. Part of Transcaucasia was ceded to Turkey. Russia lost 26% of her total population, 27% of her arable land, 32% of her average crops, 26% of her railway system, 33% of her manufacturing industries, 73% of her iron industry, and 75% of her coal fields. Besides that, Russia had to pay a large war indemnity. You would think that this was disastrous to Russia, but I would argue that Lenin may have been brilliant in his negotiations. The Bolsheviks were nowhere close to being in command of Russia. They were also about to embark on a civil war. If they had to gain control of the country, it would have been more difficult had they fought for all that other territory. Add to that, it has been suggested that Lenin and Trotsky were pretty sure that the Germans would, at best, lose the war, which would allow them to recapture some of the territories, and at worst, they would gain a tie, which would allow the same outcome. It was a dangerous gamble, but one that the Bolsheviks were willing to take. They would be blown to the sidelines of history if they didn't end the war right then and there. As for granting land to the peasants, well, that, as we know, was a ruse. 
they would be allowed to take complete control of the land they were on, but only within a communal community. As we know, it was the first step to total collectivism. The handing over of the land was not made by the proclamation of the Bolsheviks. It was just something that happened organically. Those who retained land or did better than their co-workers would be called kulaks, and many would pay for their hard work and abilities with their lives. At this point, we see the drastic changes coming about under Bolshevik rule. The entirety of the judicial system was abolished. Its replacement would be revolutionary tribunals and so-called people's courts. Law wasn't as important as the march toward a Marxist-Leninist country. All titles and ranks were no more. Church property was confiscated. Minorities were told that they would be allowed the right to self-determination. However, this was another lie. Bank accounts were seized, and monies in foreign bank accounts were held by the wealthy were being confiscated by the government. The press was now under more censorship than in the time of the reactionary Nicholas I or Alexander III. All banks and heavy industries were taken over by the state immediately. On June 28, 1918, the nationalization policies were extended. According to British historian Edward Carr, those businesses that were nationalized included, quote, the mining, metallurgical, textile, electrical, timber, tobacco, resin, glass, and pottery, leather and cement industries, all steam-driven mills, local utilities, and private railways together with a few minor industries. While the Tsarist government had its secret police, the Okhrana, the Bolsheviks took it to an extraordinary height with the establishment of the Extraordinary Commission to Combat Counter-Revolution, Sabotage, and Speculation, also known as the Cheka. Led by Felix Dzerzhinsky, it would be the most feared institution in Russia. They could declare anyone an enemy of the state and take whatever they thought would be the appropriate action. Remember when I told you that the Bolsheviks had allowed the peasants to take control of the lands previously held by the gentry? Well, it didn't take long, but on February 19, 1918, they reneged on the deal and declared that all land was state-owned. Even worse, for the peasant farmer, was the initiation of war communism. The Russian Civil War was beginning that summer, with the whites doing pretty well, but both sides needed to feed their troops. The Bolsheviks had declared a food levy. In it, they demanded that all food produced be turned over to the authorities, with a small amount left to feed the farmers and their families, and seeds to sow for the coming planting season. This, of course, did not sit well with the peasants, who culled their farm animals, burnt fields, and generally did what they could to deny the Red Army provisions. In retaliation, the Reds and the Whites committed gross atrocities against those who defied them. Whole crops were taken, leaving nothing for the peasants. This caused mass starvation throughout Russia. A scorched-earth policy was also adopted, which made it even worse for all concerned. As 1919 turned into 1920, 
it became more and more apparent that the Red Army would eventually prove victorious. Western countries that had supplied aid to the whites decided to back off and gradually acknowledge the Bolsheviks as the new heads of state. Blockades around seaports were lifted, and Allied troops were sent home. Except the Japanese, who would hold and remain in the uh, Far East until 1925. Then, a war with Poland led to Red Army defeats, forcing Russia to enter into the Treaty of Riga on March 19, 1921. Poland received a large portion of the territory that it wanted in exchange for peace. Unfortunately, they would only hold on to it until the Nazi and Soviet invasion in 1939. With the majority of the Russian Civil War ending in late 1922, the Bolsheviks began to finalize their grip on power. Their real problem was the country was exhausted. The droughts of 1920 and 1921 had caused horrific losses of life, and the country's infrastructure was in a state of ruin. 20 million people perished in the war and the famine. Another 2 million people fled the country. Many were the most intellectual and industrious. Their financial system was in ruin as well. In 1914, you could get one American dollar for two rubles. In 1920, it was 1,200 rubles for a dollar. After the Civil War, there were hundreds of peasant revolts on farms throughout, and the anger of the urban workers was also on the rise. This would culminate with the rebellion starting on March 1, 1921, at the Kronstadt Naval Base. Even though the revolt was crushed by March 18th, Lenin knew he needed to change course and reform some of his most oppressive policies. This would precipitate the declaration of the new economic policy, or NEP, in the spring of 1921. Before NEP could even be implemented, the Bolsheviks needed Western aid, and they needed to be recognized as the legitimate heads of Russia. Additionally, they needed to open trade with the West, as there were countless resources that the Bolsheviks couldn't produce. Finally, they needed the capital to rebuild the country after the Civil War. However, they also needed to stick to their Lex-Leninist Marxist integrity. They would accomplish this by coming up with justifications that, in hindsight, seemed pretty absurd. Lev Kamenev would write in March 1921 before the signing of the Anglo-Soviet Trade Agreement, quote, that the foreign capitalists who will be obliged to work on the terms we offer them will dig their own grave. Foreign capital will fulfill the role Marx predicted for them. With every additional shovel of coal, with every additional load of oil that we in Russia obtain through the help of foreign technique, capital will be digging its own grave. Well, Lenin would add a year later, quote, Do not forget that in recent years, the most urgent, daily, practical, and obvious interests of all the capitalistic powers have demanded the development, consolidation, and expansion of trade with Russia. And since, since such interests exist, we can argue, quarrel, and break off relations on some issues. In the end, basic economic necessity will force its way. We cannot be sure of the exact time, but we can confidently predict that progress will be made. So, 
Basically, the Bolsheviks were saying, yes, you'll lend us money, but it'll come back to bite you. Karl Radek would further go on to argue, quote, capitalism is capable of adapting itself to varied conditions. If the conditions in Russia are impregnable, and if, at the same time, the capitalists are guaranteed some profit, they will toe the line. George Keenan, in his 1960 book, Russia and the West under Lenin and Stalin writes the following, quote, It boils down to the fact that you had here a regime, the attitude of which toward Western governments, psychologically and politically, was equivalent to that which would prevail toward an enemy in the time of war. This regime was indeed waging, on every front except the overt military one, every form of welfare and warfare that it knew how to wage and with the most deadly intent. Not being at the moment in position to pursue open military warfare with any prospect of success, it attempted to make a virtue of this relative helplessness and demanded simultaneously all the advantages of normal political and commercial intercourse. Now, I began to ask myself, what did the Soviets want in trade as they didn't have any private interests to contend with, no companies to sell products, and no commercial interests. Going back to Keenan's book, he says, quote, We should also note that in deciding what things to buy and what to sell, the Soviet government was not governed by normal commercial considerations. It regarded trade with the capitalistic world as a regrettable, temporary expedient necessary in order to enable Soviet Russia to achieve within the shortest possible time, a state of economic and military self-sufficiency. For this, an infusion of capital goods from the West was recognized as necessary, and Moscow was prepared, since it had initially no credit, to pay for this as much as possible by exports of raw materials. But the aim of this limited exchange, I repeat, was the achievement of military-industrial autocracy. Soviet trade was this, and Soviet eyes, a trade to end trade. Well, now that the trade issue was settled, Lenin knew there needed to be an appeasement of the growing animosity over the shattered Soviet economy. NEP was his response. With all of the peasant rebellions, the Kronstadt uprising, and a series of strikes crippling an already devastated economy, something had to be done. While keeping the overall structure of the government controlling the larger industries, Lenin viewed the allowance of private enterprise, small plants that employed less than 20 people, and retail shops as a necessary retreat from the complete control of the economy. Also, instead of taking all of the crops or a large percentage from the peasants, they instituted a tax. After paying the tax, the peasant could sell what remained in the free market. This would conceivably lead to greater production, as there was finally an incentive to produce more. This, in turn, would create a whole new class of prosperous peasants I mentioned earlier, known as kulaks. The term meets means fist, or someone who held on tightly to what was his. In the next decade, it would be a negative connotation, as well as a target for elimination under Stalin. 
Well, the economic resurgence that the new Soviet Union saw was pretty remarkable. The change from the communist ideals frightened many in the government. During the 11th Party Congress held in 1922, no further reforms were to be tolerated. With the death of Lenin on January 21, 1924, the reforms brought on by the NEP began to disintegrate. In 1924 and 25, restrictions were placed on the so-called NEP men, who ran retail shops and small industries. By 1927, it's when the Kulaks began to come under attack. When on December 27, 1927, Stalin gained control of the Communist Party, the wholesale change to the collectivized economic system would take hold. The new economic policy would be replaced by the endless five-year plans. The first three would begin in 1928 and end with the invasion of the Soviet Union by Nazi Germany in 1941. While the perception throughout Russia was that the NEP was making life better, in reality, it was falling way below expectations. It had increased industrial production to pre-World War I levels. But it didn't seem to produce much more than that. One of the significant problems with the NEP economy was in the agricultural sector. The amount paid for the farmer's products was way below the cost of manufactured consumer goods. This made the peasant farmer reluctant to sell grains to the government. This, in turn, created problems for the Bolsheviks as it stimulated hostilities within the underfed cities. There was growing frustration, especially amongst the rank-and-file members of the Communist Party. What had they fought so hard for and had so many of their comrades die in the just-ended Russian Civil War? Well, based on an excerpt from Fyodor Gladkov's 1925 novel, Cement, this is how the situation was viewed. Quote, I don't know where the nightmare is. And those years of blood, misery, and sacrifice are in the bacchanalia of rich shop windows and drunken cafes. What was the good of mountains of corpses so that scoundrels and vampires should again enjoy all the good things in life and get fat by robbery? The propaganda machine went to work when Stalin invoked the first five-year plan. They came up with a slogan that was to change Soviet society. It was socialism in one country. This would be the new Bolshevik battle cry, as Ryazanovsky and Steinberg put it in their book, A History of Russia. The first five-year plan was genuinely revolutionary, especially for agricultural workers. For centuries, the farmer peasants had lived the same way. In 1928 and 29, that would change dramatically. By ordering the collectivization of agriculture, it was seen by the communists as the only way that could result in a genuinely socialist, utopian society. At first, the communist leaders decided that they would move slowly with their forced collectivization of the agriculture sector. They initially planned to only place 14% of the farms under the collectivization program. The resistance to this proved to be way worse than the planners had anticipated. So, instead of backing off, they decided they would go all in. They would arrest any and all of those who would fight the program, 
sending tens of thousands to the gulags, or worse, executing many. The government would pay the farmers a fraction of what they would charge the end consumers. This difference would help pay for the more expensive industrialization part of the five-year plan. By the end of the first plan, it had been estimated that fully 91% of all arable land had been transformed into what was known as kolkhozes and sovkhozes. A kolkhoz was a form of collective farm in the Soviet Union. Kolkhozes existed along with state farms, also known as sovkhoz. While those responsible for the first five-year plan thought that this collectivization would reap significant benefits and create far more agricultural goods, they were surprised at how bad it turned out. Because of this drastic miscalculation, famines became commonplace, with some estimates claiming that between 4 and 7 million people perished from hunger. The force with which the collectivization of the farms was carried out was by a group known as the 25,000. They would go from farm to farm, town to town, to force the peasants into the collective. The kulaks were the main targets. An estimated one million of them disappeared, along with family members, which boosted the number to around five million people. In addition to the missing people, the farmers decided to slaughter their livestock instead of handing them over for nothing. Here are some of the numbers from Yazanovsky and Steinberg. Quote, Thus, from 1929 to 1933, in the Soviet Union, the number of horses in millions declined from 34 to 16.6, of cattle from 68.1 to 38.6, of sheep and goats from 147.2 to 50.7, and of hogs from 20.9 to 12.2. The industrialization of Russia was the most crucial aspect of the first five-year plan. And while it accomplished its goals in only four years and three months, it didn't come without a lot of problems. It's been said that the achievement of all of the planners' lofty goals was met with lots of production, but drastically short of quality. Well, someone had to be blamed, and it sure wouldn't be the Bolsheviks. They blamed wreckers, bourgeois experts, and others who were not fully engrossed in the communist ideology. This was more than an economic purge. It was a social one. It was also a cultural revolution to fundamentally change the way Soviet and Russian society would operate. It was all about the state. The Soviet way of life was being ingrained into the hearts and minds of everyone. For those who resisted, well, we know what happened to them. I've covered enough of that today. The change in the world of the czars was oh so different for the people, and yet it retained a lot of the bad sides. Bureaucracy still ran the country. The elite was still in charge and had all the privileges. Just different people occupied the positions. Censorship was stricter than ever, even under revolutionary czars, as I mentioned before, like Nicholas I and Alexander III. Farmers were still poor and under control of those above them. Life was still hard for the average Russian or Soviet citizen. 
It was just different, as more and more of them were part of the Industrial Revolution and lived in more significant numbers in the cities than ever before. In my opinion, the safety and comfort of the church were always amongst the most significant changes. The Russian people always had a hard life. Then, they could use the church to answer questions about why their lives were so hard. Now, the communists just used scapegoats to blame for their problems. It's a harsh reality that life transitioning from the Tsarist days to the Bolsheviks wasn't what was promised and, frankly, wasn't all that much different for the average person. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we head to the 1980s and begin talking about the transition from the Soviet way of life into the new Russian way. And again, as in last week, I'm announcing that we can uh, subscribe to this podcast and give a small donation of $3 a month to help pay for all the expenses and hosting and all that. And you can find the link at www.russianrulershistory.com. So, until next time, das vidanya. Ispasiba za vinyamanya.